All righty. So we begin tonight the, uh, the ninth principle. This principle, we said, the name of it is uh, the immutability of Torah. The Rambam actually refers to it as Bittel. He has a one-word name for this, uh, this principle. Bittel, and what he means by that is, I'll, I'll read you his language just because it's very short. He says, V'hu shezu Torah's Moshe lo tibato. This means that the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu will never become nullified. And there will never be another Torah other than the one we already have possession of. And even God himself, and we're going to talk about this tonight, but even God himself is not going to add to it, nor is he going to go ahead and detract from it. Nothing will get uh, deleted. Nothing is going to change as far as the, uh, the Torah is concerned. Okay, so what exactly is going on with this, uh, this principle? So uh, right off the bat, so this principle requires some clarification. Why? So the fact that man, that any of us here and the shir, uh, or even somebody who's a Navi is not going to be able to change the Torah. So that is clear from the previous principle. We talked about that in, uh, in principle number eight, the fact that the, the uh, the fact that uh, even uh, uh, that Torah is mina shemaim, and being that Torah is mina shemaim, the divine origin of Torah, and as such, it cannot be changed by mankind. Even Moshe Rabbeinu, who received the Torah, we said that the, the Rambam describes him as a secretary or a transcriber. So mankind does have the authority to go ahead and change the Torah. But the Rambam, in our principle over here, in principle number nine, he is addressing a deeper question than that. And that is the question whether or not even God himself could go ahead and change the Torah if he so wishes. Does God have the authority, in a sense, to go ahead and start changing things around in the, uh, in the Torah, or does he not? And our principle says that, uh, in the English translation I'll read to you, says, nor will another Torah ever come from the Almighty besides this one. So this is a strange idea, this notion that Hashem himself cannot come along and change things about the, the Torah. So why is that, uh, that so? If God is perfect and omnipotent, going back to the first five principles which, uh, which we had, so then why can't he have a, another revelation and decide, listen, it's time to update. Uh, uh, hardware gets updated, software gets up, updated, operating systems get updated, Things get updated all, uh, all along. Cameras and microphones get uh, updated. Lighting gets updated. So if we could go ahead and we could make all of these updates. So God, who is, uh, as we said, is perfect and omnipotent. So why can't he go ahead and, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, make a change to the Torah if he deems fit to, uh, to do so? So now, uh, now one simple answer to that is that... Uh, um, uh, or let me put it a little different. The, the fact that a Navi isn't going to be able to come along and change the Torah, so that we understand. You can't have a system where a Navi is going to be able to come along and change the Torah, because if that system allowed it, then between the nine of us who are, who are at this year, so we'd have at least 15 different versions of the Torah at that point, because each one of us would claim to be that qualified Navi who has the authority and the capacity to start changing around Torah. 
and then we'd have one Torah for Mondays and another Torah for Thursdays and another Torah for Shabbos. We'd be changing things right and left just to go ahead and have them match what, what, what we want. And as we've talked about, the Torah would quickly become obsolete because everybody could come along and make whatever changes and emendations they would, they would like to go ahead and do so. But why can't God change the Torah? What reason is there? Why, why does the Rambam state so emphatically that the, uh, that the uh, Torah, that the God himself cannot change the Torah? What would be the big deal if he, if he did so? If he gave us the Torah in the first place, he should have the ability to come along and say, okay, I've changed my mind, I'm updating, and now I would like to go ahead and I would revise some of the, uh, the halachas for the 21st century. It's been a long time since the Torah was, uh, was given. And uh, uh, much of life, which was true and existed back in the, uh, in the year 2448, is no longer relevant, and things are dramatically different uh, now. Uh, even over the course of our lifetimes, life has changed dramatically uh, since the time that we were born till, uh, till where we are now. So why can't God go ahead and make an update, uh, an updated version just based on what's going on in the world? So Yaakov Weinberg, uh, once again, the Rashiva in, uh, who is Rashiva in, uh, in Baltimore, Weinberg's that's out. So he explains the difference between a unique revelation and a revelation which could be repeated. And he says that the difference between a unique revelation and a revelation which could potentially be repeated or be done a second time is the difference is essentially a difference between an absolute Torah and a relative Torah. What does that mean, the difference between absolute and relative? So in the event that there was a possibility, if it was at all possible that God could come along and change the Torah, so what that, the, the thought, what that communicates to us, what that conveys to us, even without that new revelation, but the very fact that it could happen, that God could decide to have another revelation to change things. So that would mean that the Torah, it's possible that the Torah is relevant only in particular circumstances, and in other circumstances, it's not relevant. And once we have that thought in our mind, once that seed is planted in our mind, that it's possible that the Torah may be relevant in one circumstance, but not in another circumstance. So then, then all of the rationalizations which we need come into play. This is a little bit similar to the drusha that uh, sent out this, uh, this past Shabbos, that in the event that it was possible for there, the, for there to be another revelation and God could change things, what I say in my mind is, really, God wants to have another revelation. And he wants to revise, and he wants to change, and he wants to alter, and he would like to update things. But it's not necessarily appropriate for him to do so for everybody. Some people still need those old laws. Some people are in circumstances where the old rules and regulations are still going to apply. But I know that in my circumstance, my circumstance is so unique and so special that undoubtedly, if it was only me in the world, God would for sure have a second revelation and go ahead and make the necessary update. It's sort of like uh, as the CDC puts out guidelines. So when you're putting out guidelines for a country, so you need to go ahead and you need to make guidelines which are appropriate on a countrywide basis for the, the average person or the majority of people, however you're going to go ahead and do so, but you have to have guidelines which are going to sort of speak to the majority of the people knowing fully well that there's going to be exceptions for, for whom the law or the regulation is not going to make sense. 
But still, you have to go ahead. And, you know, there are some people who may be, uh, we have some of them on this shear here, some people who can drive perfectly safe at 75 down church. Not saying anything, Danny. But I'm saying that there are people who have the ability to go ahead and drive at that speed safely down that down the street. But you can't make a law saying for those people who think that it's safe for them to drive 75, they can. And for those people who do not think they can drive 75, they cannot. You have to have one law which is going to apply to everybody. And even though it may not match perfectly with some of the population, but that's the way that laws which are given on a broad basis, that's the way they have to be constructed. You have to speak to the most common denominator which you can, realizing that you're not going to be able to hit everybody. But as soon as I realize, as soon as I think that it's not relevant in all cases, that's where the rationalization comes in and says, listen, I'm one of those exceptions. And as one of those exceptions, so I can already adjust the Torah to my circumstance because I have no doubt whatsoever that we're God giving a, giving tailor-made individualized Torahs to each of us. This is... the way he would go ahead and God in our own image or creating Torah in our own image. And that certainly is not going to be, a, is not going to be a, a, a appropriate. And therefore, uh, so we could easily argue, we could even, e yes, Mel, sorry. The question is, when was the Torah given? Because we know that after Sinai, you have uh, uh, the second, you have uh, Pesach Sheni, you have the five sisters who come and say, what about our inheritance? So if this wasn't a change, what was it? Right. So uh, the, the issue of the 40 years that they traveled in the wilderness and what exactly means that they had the entire Torah already given to them at Har Sinai and how that happened, it's not as if there was like a spoiler alert at Har Sinai. And God revealed to us what the next 40 years of history is going to is going to be. They didn't know about the Miraglim already. They didn't know about the spies in advance, even though that's part of Torah. They didn't know about Moshe Rabbeinu's death. They didn't know about, uh, you know, Pinchas killing people. So those are things which they didn't know. So you, you're correct that there's a broad discussion as far exactly what was uh, in a deep discussion, as far as what exactly was given to Moshe and Harsinai in of the Torah, which is given to Moshe at Har Sinai, or was all of that shared with us, or just the laws were shared with us, or some of the laws were shared with us, so some of that could go ahead and unfold as history was unfolding, because, because you're absolutely correct. There are certain laws which seemingly, they, they occurred in real time. You gave two uh, great examples of that, the, uh, the, uh, the daughters of Slavchad and Pesach Sheni, those seemingly occurred in, in real time. Now, in some regards, some things like by the inauguration of the, uh, the dedication of the Mishkan. So there may have been times where Moshe Rabbeinu actually forgot some halachas. But it could be that what really happened is, is that all of the general principles which were given and then the details were not yet um, shared with everybody and they arose perhaps on a need to know basis. So we'd have to you know, finesse somehow those halachas into that general structure, into that general uh, perspective. But um, for now, I'm going to, uh, uh, my answer to you, Amel, is that your question is much better than my answer. That, well, that much I could say, uh, that much I could say uh, uh, with certainty. So if we wanted to, now going back over here, 
uh, if we wanted to, so we could easily say that, listen, uh, the Torah as it was given, if you go ahead and you do a thorough study of the 39 malachas, so the 39 malachas make sense in a society of the year 2448, where it was an agricultural society. So all the malachas necessary to manufacture food all revolve around that. It was a society where you had to go ahead and manufacture your own food and you had to manufacture your own clothing and whatnot. So all those malachas relating to clothing manufacturing and weaving and leather making and all of that. So those things were relevant and made sense in societies where that was the way that they conducted themselves during the week. But now that we no longer live in an agricultural society, putting aside your garden melt, but now that we no longer live in an agricultural society, and for the most part, uh, at this point in world history, we barely even leave our homes to shop for clothing. We could go ahead and we could do most of that online and just uh, order a bunch of stuff. So maybe we should say that uh, maybe we should update the halachas of Shabbos. Maybe some of the malachas, we should change the names of some of the malachas or we should change the application of some of the malachas, make them more relevant for 21st century uh, electronic and computer age rather than agriculture, uh, agricultural age. So uh, most of us, uh, certainly if you have air conditioning going on, so the work which we do, we don't even break a sweat. We do that in the comfort of our homes, sitting, uh, you know, we have the exact opposite. We really should have Shabbos perhaps should be a day of exercise where we go out and do something rather than the whole week where we sit around and we, uh, we do nothing. We sit in our chair, our comfortable chairs, and we look at screens and we do things like that all week. So maybe Shabbos should be a day to get out into the garden and get out and do some, uh, you know, some uh, get in touch with the earth once again, get your fingers get a little bit uh, dirty and your toes get a little bit dirty. Maybe we should go ahead and we should, uh, we should change that. So therefore, when we say that uh, that this principle which tells us that Torah is absolute and even God is not going to go ahead and change the Torah, that tells us that all of those rationalizations and that whole thinking process that we have, that maybe we should update things and we should change things. So this is something this principle tells us that it's not happening. That all of those principles and all of those laws as they were given at Harsinai, they are exactly relevant now, the same way they were relevant to back there, things are not changing. And if things seem off from our perspective, that's an indication that our perspective needs adjustment and we don't need to make any adjustments to the Torah whatsoever. The Torah still remains complete and whole and absolutely perfect. And it's our thinking process. Sometimes it happens to be that we get influenced by the society in which we find ourselves and that shapes our thinking process about many things. And or whenever we see it seems to us that things in the Torah may be inconsistent with our modern notion of things, it may very well be that our modern notion of things is what's off, and it's not the Torah at all which is uh, which is off. Now, and it's specifically knowledge and appreciation of those principles, which uh, they make. Um, the study of Torah nowadays, the study of Halacha Lemaisa, I know it's not the Thursday night chair, it's the Tuesday night chair, but that's what makes Halacha Lemaisa uh, particularly exciting and inspiring uh, in the 21st century. And that is trying to figure out, trying to trace the origins of all of our modern Shilas to principles which already existed in Chazal, which already find their way in Shulchan Aruch, in the Rambam, in the classic sources.
And that's something which is of great interest to, uh, to Torah scholars, is to be able to go ahead and figure out how to apply those existing laws and the existing principles of Torah to where we are to, uh, to uh, today. Um, um, right. And if you don't go with that the premise, if you don't uh, if you don't start off with that premise that the Torah is universal and it cannot change, so then you end up being like some other uh, groups in Judaism who feel that the Torah is an evolving thing, not in the sense that the, the uh, that the, the application is evolving, but in the sense that principles evolve and we need to update things and change things so that they're going to better match our modern sensibilities. And this is something which is a, is a very dangerous thing. And we see how quickly, once you go ahead and you accept that premise that it's possible for the Torah to change, or it's possible for principles to no longer be relevant, how quickly things fall apart, and how quickly one law after another law after another law after another daraisa, how quickly those things begin to, uh, to fall apart, because there's nothing cohesively which is going to be able to hold it all together other than these principles which tell us that the Torah is perfect, complete, and it will not ever change. But once you accept the, the potential that it could change, so then nothing is sacrosanct, I think there's some word like that. Sacrosanct. Sacrosanct. So nothing is going to be sacrosanct, and you could go ahead and you could, uh, you could get rid of uh, everything. I don't, I don't know who, who brought up the story today, but somebody told us a, a story that at a bris recently, uh, when it came time to naming the child, they named the child David Sarah. What does it mean, David Sarah? So the parents want to have the option that if something changes later on, so they want to have the option that they already have a name which was given from, uh, from early on in life in case the child decides to identify as male. So we already have the name David in place. And in case the child decides to identify as female, so we have Sarah in place. So we're covered on all accounts, wherever the child is going to go. So the child already has a name from the time of Brismila, a formal Jewish name, which could go in either direction. Okay. They probably think that they're being nice to their child. Uh, I think many of us here would uh, find that to probably be some sort of abuse that already from eight days old, the child is already struggling before it could even have cognitive thought. The child already is now being inflicted with, uh, you know, identity uh, issues, which will carry with them for the rest of their lives. But that's the way people think nowadays. Uh, you know, 20 years, five years ago, nobody would have ever thought of doing such a thing. Certainly when we were younger in our 20s and what now, our 30s, nobody would have ever thought of doing such a thing. And yet now that's, a, you know, people think that that's a normal, acceptable way of, of approaching things. Okay. Now, some people actually take this principle a step further. And uh, the reason why some people take it a step further is that they maintain that not it's it's not as if God has made the decision that he is not going to change the Torah, but theoretically he could. But there are those who actually maintain the position that God cannot change the Torah even if he wanted to. It's something which is outside of his, it's not just outside of his domain, we'll say it more dramatically, that the ability to change Torah is outside of God's ability. He does not have the ability to go ahead and start changing the, uh, the Torah. It's, uh, it, it's beyond him to go ahead and, and, and do so. Now, the question is why, is, that, why would that be so? How can we go ahead and say 
that if God is omnipotent and omniscient and he's all the different omnis, which we go ahead and assign to him. So if God has all of those, uh, the, these abilities, so why, if he wanted, could he not even change the Torah? The Rambam doesn't agree with that. We'll talk about that probably next week. The Rambam says that theoretically God good, could, he has just made the commitment that he's not going to. But if you go ahead and you accept this perhaps more Kabbalistic approach that God himself couldn't even change the Torah, so why would that be the uh, the case? Right. But the question is, is Loba Shamayimi, is that a principle or that's a choice? So um, if the if the uh, if the point of the Torah and its mitzvahs, just to uh, to uh, to uh, further clarify the question, if the purpose of Torah mitzvahs are to purify and elevate us. And there's many uh, statements in Chazal to that effect that the purpose of Torah mitzvahs is to elevate us and to perfect us, to purify us, to perfect us. So then it would seem to be that as a person makes progress up the scale, or they make uh, progress climbing up that mountain of perfection and purification and all of those things. So as you get into, as you find yourself in different circumstances, so it seemed to be that different things would be appropriate for you at that time. Person who, uh, you know, has an illness, a person who has uh, cancer, Rahman al-Islam, so at some point, it may be appropriate to have surgery. Another point, it may be appropriate to have radiation or chemotherapy. Another, uh, a point, another point in the process, it may be, uh, you know, a different uh, type of, uh, a different type of, uh, of approach. But each step along the way, there's going to be different approaches which are going to be taken in order to address the person's current medical condition in their current medical need. So if the point of Torah mitzvahs is to make ourselves into better people, when I'm at level five, there are certain things I need in order to be able to re- uh, uh, ascend to level 10. But by the time I get to 20, I don't need the same things that took me from five to 10. When I'm at 20, I need a new set of challenges or a new set of circumstances, which are going to help me go from level 20 to 25. And each step along the way, the more you can't keep doing the same thing and expect it to continue to grow. As you grow, you're going to need new challenges and new, um, um, uh, um, new exercises, which are going to allow you to go ahead and grow from the place where you are now. So if that's the, uh, the case, so why wouldn't it be that the Torah is also going to change and adjust based on the circumstance in which we, uh, in which we find ourselves? In fact, we know for sure that, it's not we know for sure, we know that this actually did happen over the course of, Jew, uh, over the course of history. Because when Adam and Rishon, Adam and Chava were created, meat was not allowed. The, the, the consumption of meat was something which was not allowed in Gan Eden. And for 10 generations, from Adam all the way until Noah, meat was not something which was permitted for consumption. Then something changed with the, uh, with the flood and with the, uh, the, uh, the annihilation of mankind and the take two of mankind that began with Noah and his family. And at that point, meat becomes permitted. So there was a change which happened over the course of history. Meat was originally Aser, and now meat became permitted. And then something happened 10 generations later with Avram Avinu, and uh, Karish Baruch decided 20 generations into, uh, into world history, there's going to be a mitzvah called Brismila. What happened the first 20 generations? Why didn't the first 20 generations, didn't they have the mitzvah of bris milah? As far as we know, when Adam had his sons, when Adam and Chava had their sons, there was no bris milah. 
so there's no indication that they were that he gave them a bris milah uh, eight days after they were born. This is something which kicked in with Avram Avinu. And something happened a couple of generations with Yaakov Avinu, and the prohibition against consuming Iranasha suddenly became something which was appropriate for God to go ahead and, and command. And at uh, a few generations later, not clear exactly how many, but a few generations later, as the Jews are in uh, Mitzrayim, Hakash Baruch says, He decides he's going to give us the mitzvah of a calendar. And suddenly the Jews now not only have a language and not only have names, which are Jewish names, they now have a Jewish calendar. So all of these are examples where mitzvahs became appropriate at a particular juncture in history. So if we have a strong precedent in history to say that a certain era mitzvahs were not relevant, and then as a new era or new circumstances arose, mitzvahs did become relevant, so why can't that happen in our times? Why can't God come along and say, okay, now we've shifted. We were in Gullus for a long time. Now we have a state of Israel and new halachas are going to apply. Or whatever the, the situation is, why can't we say that due to the new circumstances which are there, a new set of halachas or a new set of prohibitions should be, uh, should be applicable? Why can't God do that even if he wanted to at this point in history? Now, it happens to be that all of the examples that we gave of changes of halacha or changes to Torah and history all occurred before Mount Torah. So that's something which is important to keep in mind. But there is precedent to say that such a thing could occur. And being that in history, it has occurred. So why could that not happen again? Why is it so far-fetched and so unreasonable? And why, why would we even say, according to these opinions, that God, that at this point, God could not even change the Torah by adding or subtracting from it, even if he wanted to. That is the uh, the the, uh, the the question. So, to uh, begin to get an understanding of this uh, this opinion, so what we need to do is we need to go back to Chazal's statement, where they told us that our avos and our imahos, that our forefathers and our foremothers, they went ahead and they fulfilled the Torah even before it was given. Now, that certainly is a strange notion. It's a strange idea to think that Avram Avinu, Avram and Sarah will go ahead and fulfill all of the mitzvahs of the Torah, even before the Torah was given. Chazal even say that there were, the Gemara in Erevin tells us that there were even certain Durabanans, which Avram and Sarah were already uh, following, already felt that they were subjected to, or they're obligated to, uh, to subscribe to, uh, which is, uh, you know, just in the, in the sequence of time, is, uh, an, uh, is an amazing thing to contemplate how Avram Avinu could be subject to Durabanans when you don't even have a Daraisa to have a Durabanan, to create Durabanans, which then go backwards in time and, uh, and uh, become binding. Sounds like we're you know, back to the future with that time uh, continuum or whatever, all that confusion. When you go backwards in time and forwards in time, how all of that is going to be managed. But how, could that, uh, how, how exactly does that, uh, that, that work? How would they know what mitzvahs that they're supposed to do when the, uh, the, uh, the mitzvahs have not yet been revealed to mankind? We know that there are midrashim, which talk about uh, Avram Avinu, that when the guests came to visit, when the angels came to visit Avram Avinu, it was Pesach. And he was, went ahead and he made them matzahs. So again, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an incredible idea that there could be a mitzvah of eating matzahs on the 15th of Nisan when Klai Yisrael hasn't even gone into Mitzrayim yet. They haven't been subjected to slavery. 
they haven't been released from slavery, and yet Avram Avinu is already celebrating this historical event uh, hundreds of years, it could be 400 years, before it actually takes place. He's already eating matzahs to commemorate the event, which is 400 years hence, 400 years in the, in the future. So how could Avram Avinu possibly know that there's going to be a mitzvah of matzah based on that historical event, which is now in the future. It's not even, it's not even history. And in the event that the mitzvahs were known to Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov, Sar Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, and not only did they know about the mitzvahs, but they were fulfilling the mitzvahs. So that sort of deflates the whole excitement about Matan Torah. Matan Torah is exciting because this is the moment where God is going to reveal himself and he's going to give us all of the Torah and all the mitzvahs. We get 613 mitzvahs minus the ones that Mel mentioned, which come up later on. But minus those, we got all the mitzvahs at Har Sinai. But if this was known to the Jewish people generations ago, so that it's sort of, it, it, it's old stuff. Oh, we, th- this is what you got for us? Oh, we know about this for years and years. We've, we've been familiar with matzah and the mitzvah of matzah and all of those things. So how exactly do we reconcile all of this? How do we make sense of out of all of these, uh, these chazals? And how is this going to impact specifically our understanding of why it is that according to some, even Hashem himself cannot change the Torah? So the, the answer to that is, is that uh, although it may be that Avram Avinu and Sar Imenu followed the mitzvahs, they may have done as many assays as it was possible to do during their lifetime. And they may have uh, restrained themselves from violating as many prohibitions as they could over the course of their lifetime. There's a, there's a qualitative difference between the mitzvahs which were fulfilled by Avram Avinu in Sari Imenu and the mitzvahs which we follow today. And it's not just a matter of semantics, but there's a qualitative difference uh, uh, in, in that regard. And that is, is that um, when HaKadosh Baruch went ahead and how, how did they, uh, to, to understand that? So we have to think, how did Avram Avinu and Sari Menu, how did they figure out what exactly the mitzvahs were? If there's no moment of revelation, if you're four or 500 years in advance of the event of Matan Torah, so how does an Avram Avinu and a Sari Menu, how do they figure out that there's going to be a mitzvah of eating matzah and there's going to be a mitzvah of lighting Shabbos candles? How do they go ahead and they figure that out? So what happened was, is that, as we know from Avram Avinu's history, as Chazal tells us, that Avram Avinu goes ahead and he meditates upon creation. He realizes that God created the world. That was the first part of his, uh, his study. That was like his, uh, his undergraduate degree, was the fact that, uh, that God existed. Then as he moves on to his graduate degree and his doctorate, so what he begins to do is he says, if there is a God who created the world, and God created the world in order to be mated, in order to be able to do good, to bestow good upon others. So by definition, everything which exists in creation is going to serve a function in order for that goal to be realized. Nothing is extra in creation. Nothing exists by accident in creation. Everything is here for a specific person. It's here to be used as a tool in order to be able to fulfill the ultimate purpose of creation, the destiny of the universe. There's a destiny to the universe and everything which was created herein is a tool in order to be able to achieve that. So as Avram Avinu and Sarimenu sit there and they meditate upon that and they contemplate that and they think about that and they look around at nature and they look around at the world, so suddenly things become clear to them 
as to what their function is. It's hard for us to imagine uh, what it is, but sometimes if you've ever watched like one of these, uh, there, there's videos of everything nowadays, but there are people who make videos, they make their living solving puzzles on a, uh, you know, uh, with, with the, a video camera running. And you see them open up the packaging and they explore and they, the thinking process which takes place in their brain, they verbalize as they're going through it. And over the next 10, 15, 20 minutes, depending on the complexity of the puzzle, they examine it and they're looking at it from all different angles, trying to figure out why every piece of this puzzle is actually there. And as they experiment and they try and they do all sorts of things, so ultimately they solve the puzzle. You know, as I said, sometimes it takes them 10 minutes, sometimes it takes them longer, but they know that whatever is there in the puzzle, every component of that is going to play a role in solving the puzzle. Unless the puzzle maker is, you know, Stam Lahachis and, you know, he's in Russia and puts things in there just to throw you off, which have absolutely nothing to do, but knowing that God is a native, so he would not create a puzzle in that way. So they know that there's an answer to all these questions. Everything which exists has a purpose and a function and can be used as a tool in Avodah Hashem. And as Avram Avinu and Sarimenu examine the world, slowly things become, come into focus and they begin to realize well, how, why certain things exist and the purpose for which those things are going to, uh, to exist. And they slowly begin to piece together what the laws of the Torah are. And what the obligations are, what the mitzvahs are, what you are allowed to do, what you should do, and what you should what you should not do. But even though they uh, they did a masterful job at being able to figure that out, uh, and as great as they were in doing so, as great uh, puzzle masters as they uh, they were, they're still finite beings, and they're only going to be able to see things from their finite perspective. And they're only going to be able to arrive at conclusions based on, on that. And there's going to be a, 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 a limited um, uh, a limitation on what they're going to be able to, uh, to discern. So all the mitzvahs which they performed were the product, were the result of their own understanding of how the world, how the, uh, the universe functions. But when God goes out and gives us the Torah at Har Sinai, when we have the event of revelation at Har Sinai, it wasn't what we think of it in terms of a bill of rights or a bill of obligations, perhaps we should say, it wasn't a declaration of independence, which states certain inalienable rights and obligations, which, which we have. The Torah is more than just a set of laws of do's and don'ts, but the Torah actually, or I should say the better, Hashem actually put the essence of who he is into the Torah. So if there's such a thing, if you want to know what God is, God is an infinite being. So inf infinity is something which we can't really grasp. But if you want to get a sense of who God is, God put himself into the Torah itself, the very essence, the very spirit of God exists within the Torah itself. And that itself is something in, when God goes out and does so, it's not the through the meditation or the contemplation of Avram Avinu and Sarimenu. But when God himself does it, when he infuses his essence into the, into the Torah, so now it takes on, all the mitzvahs take on a completely different perspective because we're not only connecting to the universe, we're connecting to the creator of the universe. We're, create, we're connecting with God himself when we go ahead and we do the, the mitzvahs. And therefore, although you could look at a picture of Avram Avinu, and he would be wearing tzitzis, and you could look at the tzitzis which you're wearing, or you could look at the Shabbos candles which Sarah Imenu uh, kindled, and you could look at the Shabbos 
candles which you yourself kindle, and they may look superficially in a, in a two-dimensional picture, in the three-dimensional uh, scene, they may look exactly the same, but qualitatively, they're very different. Because Sari may not lit, lit candles because she discerned through her own analysis that that is one of the functions of fire, and that's one of the functions of the seventh day of the week, and bring them together, and how that represents Shalom and all of those wonderful things which we talk about with, uh, with Shabbos candles. But it's not the same thing as when God says, like Chabas candles, or when God says, put this on your garment, because now you're connecting not just to the universe, you're connecting to the divine, you're connecting to God himself. And therefore, um, the, uh, the uh, performance of the mitzvahs, the study of mitzvahs, and the performance of mitzvahs isn't something which is uh, a, a mere exercise in trying to refine you as an individual, trying to elevate you and trying to purify you, but it becomes an act of godliness. It's an act of connecting with HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself, and that, that elevates it, takes the, uh, the mitzvahs which we do into a completely different arena, completely different uh, uh, level to go ahead and do so in that way. And being that, the Torah itself, that the revelation at Har Sinai and the giving of the Torah in the formal way, not the informal way, which was through the act of creation, but the Torah was given in the formal way of Har Sinai. So once we understand that when God did so, he did that in the process of doing so, he went ahead and he infused the very essence of who he is in the Torah. So once we accept that, then by definition, God cannot change the Torah. Because like we talked about in the earlier principles, God cannot change. God's existence, his thinking process cannot change. Whatever he is, whatever God is, whatever we're going to go ahead and use to describe God or the words which fall short of describing God, but clearly God cannot change. And if we say that God took the very essence of who he is and he put that into the Torah, so that means by definition, the Torah also cannot change. Because the, the saying, that the, the saying uh, which, we, uh, which we repeat on, on Simchas Torah, for example, Yisrael v'araisa v'kut shabrichu chadhu, that once we say, oraisa, the Torah, v'kut shabrichu and God are one and the same, they're synonymous with one another, if we could borrow that type of uh, terminology. So once we say that, the, that God and the Torah are synonymous with one another, then whatever that mathematical principle is, whatever is true by A has to be, if A and B are equal, whatever is true by A has to be true by B. So if God and the Torah are chad, are one, then just like God cannot change, the Torah cannot change. And it's not, it doesn't represent a weakness of God. It doesn't represent uh, an inability that God has, which would be a chisar, which would be something indicative of a deficiency in God. The reason why the Torah, that God cannot change the Torah is for the very same reason he cannot change himself, because he's already perfect in every way. And once he's perfect in every way, and he infused that perfection into the Torah, so then the Torah also, by definition, cannot, uh, cannot change. And therefore, uh, according to this, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the whole question of whether or not uh, it's possible to change the Torah or not is really inappropriate, because the Torah is nothing less, again, using uh, uh, the human construct of language, which we have the best that we can, but the Torah is nothing less than God in words. And that's the main, uh, that's the main point. 
And based on that, now we understand why he cannot go ahead and change anything. And now we can go back to the language of the Rambam in this principle. I told you that it was short, but he says that the, the we can understand the importance of the mitzvahs of, uh, uh, the, sorry, the, the prohibition of adding to the Torah or subtracting from the Torah. So the fact that I cannot subtract from the Torah, so that we can all understand pretty easily in our mind. Because if you can start whittling away, well, 613 mitzvahs, that's a little overwhelming. That's a little overbearing. We'll go down to 600 mitzvahs. It's a nice even number. We'll go ahead and we'll come up with another gematria. Why it should be 483 mitzvahs. Whatever number we're going to go ahead, if we start whittling away at the Torah, that clearly is going to diminish from the Torah. But what would be so bad if I went from 613 to 631? Similar numbers. I still have a six. I still have a three. I still have a one. So why would it be so bad to go ahead and add about uh, uh, 18 mitzvahs to the Torah at Chai. <laughs> we'll go 613 plus Chai. That'll give us our 631. So why would that be such a bad thing to go ahead and, and do so? So the Sefer Chinuch actually says this very well. And I'll read you the, the English translation they have from the Sefer Chinuch, why, how he explains these two prohibitions against adding to the Torah and, uh, and subtracting from the Torah. So he writes, the translation is, the underlying thought behind this mitzvah uh, is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who commanded us to fulfill the Torah is infinitely perfect. And all his deeds and all his commandments are perfect and good. According to them, therefore, uh, sorry, adding to them, therefore, is detrimental as it is, it is certainly detracting from them. Because if you say that really we need 613 mitzvahs plus 18, that means in the 613 state, it's not yet perfect. And to go ahead and say that in the state of 613 mitzvahs, the Torah is not yet perfect. But if you add another 18 mitzvahs to get you to 631, then it will be perfect. That means that the Torah given to us was not perfect. It was not whole. It was not complete. And that itself is something which is, uh, which is completely inappropriate. So therefore, adding to them is detrimental. The, the phrase which Chazal uses, kol ha-mosif goreya, any time you add to it, you're ultimately detracting from it, you're subtracting from it, you're indicating that it is, that is, is, is uh, 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 deficient, and therefore, uh, that's going to be detracting from it. And he says, he concludes, this thought is very clear. So this clearly indicates us, this, uh, this uh, thought of the Sefer Chinuch tells us, expresses very clearly this idea that if the Torah is going to be a manifestation of God and his omniscience, so by definition, it cannot ever be changed. Not by us, not by prophets, not by Moshe Rabbeinu, and not even God himself would have the capacity to go ahead and change it, because if God were to change it, that must mean that what he gave us was not perfect in the first place, and it wasn't an expression of the very essence of God. And if we believe that the Torah is an expression of God himself, so just as God is perfect, the Torah is also going to be perfect, and neither one of them could ever, uh, could ever change. And I think we'll, uh, uh, as far as my clock on the, the, uh, the computer is concerned, it's right at nine o'clock. So we'll hold it over, uh, over here.